You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Judges chapter 4. Isn't our music team doing a great job? Aren't they doing it? Can we give them a hand today? I just appreciate them so much, all your work. And uh, these songs, both songs that we want to hold to and keep singing, uh, as well as new ones that uh, we're learning or revisiting. Man, that's a great song, that last song we sang. That arrangement is just beautiful of those familiar words. Judges chapter 4 today. Just a couple things of note housekeeping-wise. First of all, thank you for... Uh, leaving some open spots I can even see from here in the north parking lot. So thank you for that as new folks come. And uh, at least they can't blame us now if they leave, okay? Once they see, oh, it's that pastor that preaches there, and then they pull out. Uh, we can't blame the parking now. But um, thank you for your help on that. And God's really growing and blessing our church, and I'm grateful for that. And to regularly have people who say, how's it going in Worcester? If they're, They may mispronounce Worcester, but they'll ask how it's going and at our church. And I'll say, well, despite the leadership, it's actually going pretty well. And I mean that when I say that. It's just amazing what God does with people like us and uh, grateful for that. But uh, as we're growing, one other thing of note, and I'll mention this again tonight in the service, but uh, we talked about our parking is one of the areas of sticking point that we uh, are trying to address as folks are coming and Appreciate your partnership on that. The second thing is we have a lot of munchkins in our church, a lot of uh, kids in our church, kiddos, and we're grateful for that. And uh, wanted just to ask for your help in a couple things that I think will help us with that. So as the building is getting snugger, especially uh, in our shared spaces, the central lobby, um, typically now when folks build a new church building, the lobby is the same size as the auditorium. That's a typical rule of thumb now, and ours is not, okay, to say the least. Um, and so as we're still working on renovating things and God is growing our church, we just ask for a couple things from our parents, if you can help us with this. Uh, we've had um, some of our kids, just how they're moving around or the spaces they're in, that we feel like a couple of tweaks would really help with that. And it would ask especially for the parents to help us with that. Um, the first thing is if we can just try to keep our kids from running through the building, if they can just walk, I think that's a good thing in any building they're in. We don't have like just a big gymnasium. Maybe someday God will give us that, but if you could help us with that. Um, and then just a couple of areas we'd ask the kids not to be in. This would be, I'm talking specifically fifth graders and down. So this would be, that's the group we're talking about. Um, not to be uh, up on stage or in the sound booth that we just finished or in the classroom wing unless we're doing like junior church or there's a kids program. So that lobby door uh, should be the extreme, that direction that our kids are going. Um, and then the last thing is that we want to change is our south and north lobbies. So the lobbies that are behind you where our main restrooms are, unless the kids are there for to go use the restroom or something you've instructed them to do, we'd ask them not to be in those spaces. Um, that just helps us manage things a little bit better. And then the last thing is I think will be the biggest rule of thumb help would be parents, if you can make sure when your kid is in this building, unless they're under the oversight of our junior church teachers, that's the main exception I can think of that you can see them and they can see you. Um, one of the things where we're having some issues is just the parents are in here, the parents are maybe in another room, and then the kid's in a separate room. So who's in charge of them, who's uh, holding them accountable. So those few uh, guidelines would really help us out as we manage um, our kids. And that's not because we don't want kids, okay? I love that we have our kids and I'd rather have a little too much noise or even these things we're talking about today. I'd rather have to say this today then, then it's crickets, and we have a bunch of old geezers, and that's all we have, okay? There are a few of us that fit that category today, and we have a set of rules for you, too. We'll cover later, okay? But um, don't fall asleep in church and other things like that. But uh, just grateful for how God's growing our church. And I said this a few weeks ago, anytime you improve something, all you do is trade one set of problems for a new set of problems. And the key question is always to ask, is the new set of problems better than the old set of problems? If it is, we're making progress, okay? And so that's, that's just going to be ongoing till Jesus comes, and I appreciate your help uh, in that. Secondly, I want to thank you for your help with our Amen Project. If you look at the back of your bulletin, we've now reached the over 50% mark of our goal. Uh, we've raised $112,000 in just the last like four months, which has been amazing. 
We want to thank many of you who have given sacrificially. And uh, pray if you would with us this week. We're meeting with the architect about the final kind of unfinished space in our current building and what our strategy is, be, is going to be. There are a few details that we need to iron out with him. The main reason we need to do that is because before we are order the carpet for this room that we now have the funds to do so, we need to figure out how much of that space needs the same carpeting in order to make sure we can match that. So if you pray for us as we try to get all of that figured out, and then if you can keep giving, the last chunk of that money will go to renovate that space behind the wall that uh, is behind you today and to helping tie that into the central lobby. So pray if you would with us on that, but just want to thank, say thank you. Those who came and helped, we will have to pull up all of this carpet as well as the flooring in the south lobby. So we'll have some demo to do uh, when we get to that point that we'll ask for your help on as well. But thank you for your help in advance uh, on that. And then the last thing is tonight we have our post high school summit, PHS summit, we're calling it. It's going to be a Q&A kind of format with the Cotners and Heidi and I just kind of talking about what should be our mindset as it relates to those as they graduate out of high school, how to partner with our young people. So I invite you to be back for that at 530. And can I say this directly to those who are mentoring our teens? Uh, it's been awesome to see many of you adults adopt one of our teenagers and to see the teenagers open to those relationships. Some of you are still getting that going. But um, can I encourage our mentors to be back tonight for that? I think that will help shape how you encourage and steer uh, our young people in partnership with their parents. So all of that is just kind of by way of introduction today. All right, let's go to Judges 4 and look, if you will, at verse number 4. Judges chapter 4 and verse 4. So we get now to the next in our series of Judges. Uh, we're studying on um, the relentless grace of God in the midst of the book of Judges. Verse 4 We'll get back to verses 1 to 3 in a moment. In Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. She dwelt under the palm tree, uh, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for, to ju uh, for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of, Ahim, of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee, uh, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army. So this is the new um, oppressor that's referenced back in verse 1, Jabin. Um, he says, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, if thou wilt go with me, then will I go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, verse 9, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine own honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so we're looking at today number four. God's grace for the emasculated generation. I'll define what it means to be emasculated in just a moment. Grace for the emasculated generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy it is to gather today. Thank you for these dear folks and their willingness to trust our church and, and uh, me today and each that ministers to them with your word. And Lord, help us to be faithful with that stewardship, to, to be true to your word, to be guided by your spirit and to exalt Jesus Christ as we seek to lift him up today and to just let him shine. And I pray, Father, that you would convince us for the first time or the umpteenth time that you are still relevant, that you are still powerful, that you still long to work in this day and in this generation. Forgive us, Lord, when we relegate you to just days gone by into past generations and eras. Well, Lord, you're transcendent. You are eternal. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, I pray that you would convince us again this morning that you still want to prove yourself and manifest yourself if we will simply allow you to do so in and through us. Bless this study. Be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The word emasculated that uh, we're using as kind of the guiding concept of this generation being described here in Judges chapter 4, the word emasculated means this, describing of a man, a man deprived of his male role or identity, R-O-L-E, 
Or secondly, it is to, means to make weak, weaker or less effective. So that's the idea. And specifically, we see in Judges chapter 4 uh, that masculinity is on decline and some of the consequences and challenges that it posed uh, in this generation. I love to be around men. I, I love to be around, even I love the way Miss Rachel plays the piano, um, but, and I mean that not in an, any way in a negative way, just for the record, otherwise we'll lose one of our pianists. Um, but a man plays a piano differently than a woman, and I have a good friend who is a very gifted pianist, and just, it's, I, can, I could hear him play and hear Miss Rachel, or another, and I would know that's a man playing the piano. There's just something that's different in how they play a piano. Same thing with you ladies. There's a feminine touch that's very distinctive in its fingerprints and how it impacts the things that you do. Um, but I love to be around men and not the dysfunctional or the chauvinistic maybe profiles of that that we see in our culture. And I didn't ask Miss Wanda for permission to show this, but she posted this picture the other day. I think this was a few months ago. This is of Paul, right? Uh, hog hunting in, was it Georgia? And she just put this little caption. She posted this on Facebook. She said, that's my man. That's my man right there, okay? And uh, Paul is, is a man. And I think he gave me a pound. I haven't eaten it yet, but he gave me some pork the other day that may be from this, uh, from this hunt. There's my man, uh, masculinity. And so we want to talk today about how we can deal with and navigate some of the challenges that go with when we find ourselves deficient. Uh, with masculinity. May I say this as we begin today, no matter how soft or lovers of self men become in our culture, the same, who are, uh, the same God who worked in the past through different eras of church history and different periods of human history can still work today, even with all of those issues uh, going on in our culture. Um, and so we see here in the text that really the women take the lead. We're going to talk about how the ladies uh, lead in a way that God uses in this, uh, this dire hour in Israelite history. Now, the fact that the leading figures in chapter 4 of Judges and chapter 5 are women is significant because of a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, because it shows that the, that the men were not fulfilling their roles and responsibilities. Secondly, I think it also reminds us that you ladies have very important roles of leadership uh, and influence and how to make sure that we position ourselves for God's favor and blessing in our day. So the question today is this, in a day where godly masculinity is on the decline, and I would give you two words, man bun, okay, might be one evidence of that, no offense today, um, if that's you, but uh, with that on the decline, how can we believe that God is still able to work uh, even when maybe we see these trends? So let's talk about today two voids created by an emasculated society that God fills with his grace um, if we will simply trust and yield to him. Number one, let's talk about, first of all, emasculated timidity. So the first thing we see evidenced in the text today is a timidness on the part of Barak, uh, a man who was timid and hesitant uh, where he should have possessed great courage. Thursday was a warmer day, right? And we have some out sick today, or those of you recovering from illness. And, and I love the 65 days, degree days in February, but it tends to lead to some of the, the illness and things that maybe plagues our church this morning a bit. Um, but I decided on Thursday to, um, we're wanting to add a bathroom in our basement. Um, we have a walkout basement. We just have a one-bath house, and that's where I wanted to add a second a bath. But we're putting in the basement. So to get the drains in, we have to cut into the concrete floor, something I have never done before. And I both I knew would be messy, um, but also just, I mean, that's kind of irreversible, right? And so it was warm enough I could keep the door open and the walkout, and I had a, a, a concrete saw, a gas-powered one. So you got gas fumes, you got just dust just blowing. I mean, I looked, it had been, I wish I'd taken a picture. I wouldn't show you, but I had a, I looked rough after getting done with that project on Thursday evening. Um, something I'd never done before, but something I asked my plumber about, who's going to come rough in the drains and things for me later um, this spring. One of the things I've noticed about us guys, can I just challenge us today with something, is we, we get to the point that we're not willing to be a novice again. Like I hear men who will say, well, I'm not handy. Another reason they think they're not handy is because growing up, they weren't taught how to do certain things, and that was 50 years ago. <laughs> Maybe we can learn some new things. Can I challenge all of us with this? 
We're not even willing to try new things, let alone do dangerous things in our day. We are timid men. We are timid people. And the thing I love about God is though we, sh- we often in our day have great timidity, God still wants to boldly share and show what he can do. And though we see timidity on part of the men here in Judges chapter 4, God's going to do something tremendous. God's going to do something assertive and aggressive uh, through the power of his spirit. Um, and so despite the lack of courage and maybe the courage that's drained out of the average man today in our culture, God still wants to boldly work. Do you believe that today? Because I do. I'm often hesitant and timid, but my God wants to do bold things. He wants to do it in this generation. He wants to do it in the generation that is to come. So let's talk about a couple things in this area of where we are timid and yet God promises to prove himself uh, if we will simply allow him. Number one, jot this down, not on the slides, but there in your bulletin today. Know that God will still hear his people despite timid men. God will still hear. Um, we men are not known for hearing, right? Uh, listening. We hear, but we don't necessarily listen. I think I've shared this at least once before. I heard a guy who said, I, my wife stopped after she'd been talking and said, you weren't even listening, were you? And I thought to myself, that's a pretty strange place to start a conversation. (laughs) Starting a conversation with that question. We don't listen as we should. And yet, though men may not listen, God does hear his people. There are times in this room, wives, you've tried to open up to your husband and share something that's on your heart. And though that, that man, that husband that's responsible, listen, though he may not listen, God still hears you. But at times your pastor doesn't hear you and others in your life that you look to for godly leadership, though we as men fail you, God still hears you. Isn't that something to rejoice in and be comforted by today? God still hears his people. Go back to verse 1. It says, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So here we go again. When Ehud was dead, the left-handed guy who had just delivered them and the peace that ensued. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain, of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. Notice now verse 3. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had, this Sisera, 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Number one, underneath of that, we see first a herd deliverance. God hears, and God is about to deliver his people from these who were uh, oppressing, those who were dominating um, his people. Um, These 900 chariots. Now, when we hear chariots today, we're not as impressed by that. But it kind of would have been like the the smart bombs or the drones of our day. This gave Jabin and Sisera the upper hand in any military engagement. They had sophisticated weaponry that not only the Israelites, but other nations around them did not uh, possess. And so they used these to oppress um, the Jewish people, to oppress the Israelites in this generation. But you notice in verse 3 that after 20 years, this goes on for 20 years, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. God heard them again. Isn't it amazing? We talked about this, I think, last time, how often the repetition of our shortcomings often convinces us that God's just tired of us. I failed him in this area, not just once, but for the umpteen time. I can't even remember how many times I've done this, but he does, and he tires of me. And yet God here, here, uh, here in the text clearly listens to them. Verse 5, And Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, she judged Israel at this time. Verse 5, She dwelt under the palm tree. She had a tree named after her of Deborah. Behold, Ramah and Bethel and Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Number 2, we see herd oversight. God was looking after his people, even during this drought of masculinity, this drought of spiritual leadership. God still used Deborah to give guidance and reference point. They came to her for legal matters and relational challenges and social issues, and she would rule on these areas of need uh, in their day. It's interesting because Deborah is a unique judge in that not only does she, is she a part of conquest or freeing the people of God, but she actually rules over them. She is 
guide them. None of the other uh, judges uh, are described in this way. She counseled God's people. She guided God's people. She didn't just lead on the battlefield. She led during uh, times that were not times of battle. A picture again of the judge who will have the government upon his shoulders, the judge, the one who will be faithful. And Deborah gives us a glimpse of that in Judges chapter 4. I heard something recently, someone was talking about hearing. Have you ever been around somebody that's just a really good listener? Some people hear you, and, and they, we joked about us men and our tendencies, but a lot of us, we listen only to respond, right? Yeah, I hear you, and about halfway through whatever we're saying, we can feel them beginning to pivot to what they're going to say back to us. Um, but some are really good listeners, and somebody said this. This is so powerful to think of not just between us, but between us and God. To be heard, this is data, shows this, statistics show this, to be heard is so close to being loved that to many, the difference between the two is indistinguishable. And I'm telling you, God loves on us every day and in every generation and in every moment of human history because he is willing to hear us. He's willing to listen to us. And yet often we're convinced in our fearfulness and because of what's going on around us that God is no longer listening. No matter how many or how much men are dysfunctional, God is still leading his people with a listening ear. God's ears are always open to the cries of his people for rescue and for rulership in every generation. Why then are we praying so little? Why are we praying so little to a God who hears us in every generation? Why are we not crying out to him with confidence that he not only hears, but he also listens? Know that God will still, still hear his people despite timid men. All right, verse 6. And she, Deborah, called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord of God, of is, God of Israel commanded, saying, Go, draw toward the Mount of Tabor, take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. Number two, know that God will still direct his people despite timid men. Know that God will still direct his people despite timid men. I don't know, especially if the guys in the room, if this connects with you, but as I think about my formative years, there are a lot of different men who impacted me. Um, my, obviously, my dad, I just saw him yesterday at a wedding in Canton. Um, my youth pastor, my pastors that I've had, um, teachers, counselors, sponsors, all kinds of men. But one of the groups of men that impacted me greatly were my coaches. Um, T-Ball, um, Little League, and Butler-Belleville area um, coaches I had in basketball uh, down through the years. But have you ever run into one of your coaches now, maybe as especially a middle-aged person? What do you call them? I, I have yet to be able to call my childhood coaches by their first name. What is it? Coach? Hey, coach. And they coached you like when you were six in T-ball, okay? But it's, it just, that just fits. They were a guide. They were someone that, that was there for that season in our lives for three or four months or several seasons in a row. But we looked to them for guidance. If I were to ask you today, who practically, not let's say what we think everybody wants us to hear, but who is the one guiding you? Who are you checking in with before you make that decision? Who are you looking to before you have that reaction? God wants to be that for us today. He's not over us. He's not done with us. He wants to be our guide. And we see clearly God interjecting himself, setting up a battle plan, putting things in motion. He was engaged and still directing his people despite the fearfulness and the hesitancy of the men in the chapter. And I notice two things here. I think we all do if we look at the text carefully as it relates to this direction. First of all, we see directed initiative. Um, there's a little word there in verse 6 that jumped out at me that I circled this time as I worked through the text. Look at verse 6 again. It says, the Lord commanded, this is Deborah, a woman telling a man what to do, all right? And specifically to have some initiative or drive. It says, go and draw, what's the next word? Toward. Moving toward the enemy. Moving with initiative. God wanted his people not to be on retreat, 
but to be on the forward move. And so Deborah here instructs Barak, this commander of, of his tribe, and God, God speaks through Deborah and gives him this admonition. And so even when there's timidity in the ranks of God's men, he is still more than able to get those men and others like them not moving away from the enemy, but toward the enemy. It can happen today. I believe today. That's why I'm I'm here today. Because I at times do get discouraged by the passivity of the men of our day, starting with the guy standing in front of you. How laid back and reserved and just casual when God wants me to be committed. It drives me crazy. And I see it in other men in this room and in our community. But today, that can change. God can move us towards some things. We've been hesitant or balking or vacillating. He wants to move us toward those things. He still longs to direct us. It's amazing to me. Because I've said no to him or wait or maybe or no. And he still wants to direct his will through my life. He wants to channel it through the opportunities that he gives me. And then notice as if, if that were not enough, notice now what he says in verse number 7. And I will draw unto thee the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jamin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thy hand. Number two, a directed promise. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He promises them the victory. He says you're going to win. And God here is, is, is sovereignly in control of these circumstances. He's moving Sisera and his armies and his chariots wherever he wants. He is the one in control. Notice Barak's response in verse 8. As we just read, Barak says unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And so Barak, when God says, I will, I will, I will, Barak responds with, I won't unless. And so we see a reluctance to claim the promises of God and to do what is necessary to experience God's power and provision in his life. How many things have we missed out on that God's already promised us that he would do because we just possess timidity, we possess hesitancy, we possess... Um, less than the courage and conviction that God wants uh, to be a part of our lives. And I'm thankful this morning in this room for every family that's represented, for every marriage, for every parent-child relationship, and for this church as a whole, that the potential of what God can do through us does not rest upon how much courage I possess or don't possess. God's promises, that's where we get hope today. That's where we sustain our hope in is we bank upon, we count upon that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And here's what I found. Have you ever found this to be true? God does it despite me, not because of me. God does it despite me because he's going to do what he has promised to do. And I think we see that clearly being alluded to in the text this morning. Now, before we move on, obviously we have here Deborah Um, the only uh, female judge that's described in the book of Judges, and one of the only ladies that we see in all of church history and Israel's history that took the lead. Uh, What do we do with that, with our understanding of scriptures that relates to leadership in the church and leadership in the New Testament age uh, with you ladies in the areas that God has given you leadership and has also limited uh, your leadership or or, uh, given it specific application? It's interesting because women were allowed in the Old Testament to fulfill two of the three offices. And I just give this quickly this morning because obviously there's debate about what the role of the woman should be, what the significance of gender is as it relates to leadership. But in the Old Testament, um, there were three great offices. You had the prophet, the priest, and then you had the leader, either king or judge. Um, And so we see Deborah serving as a prophet, right? We see clearly that being referenced there. We also see her serving as a leader, either a judge or a queen. We see that being referenced there. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we see women serving as priests. That's interesting, right? In Numbers chapter 3 and verse 10, as well as Leviticus 21, we see that all the priests were male descendants of Aaron, right? Um, They fulfilled that uh, responsibility, 
Um, and so the Old Testament affirms that women are equal in value, dignity, and ability. Sometimes they have greater potential and ability in areas even of leadership. It also shows that the women were free to use their gifts in any role uh, except that of a priest. And I want to give you a statement today. This is probably the best thing I've heard on men and women and what our roles are and as it relates to gender. Men and women, jot this down if you're taking notes today, men and women are equal but not equivalent. That is the best definition I've heard of how to navigate this. Men and women are equal, but they are not equivalent. It's not man equals woman, woman equals man. We are equal in the sight of God. We're made the image of God, but we are not the equivalent of one another. So we must understand our roles uh, of leadership. In the New Testament, we see the same pattern following through. Women had places of influence and leadership. God forbid, uh, forbade only one role in the church to women, and that would be the pastor-teacher office. Um, and we see that referenced in several places in the New Testament. But I think sometimes we relegate you ladies to teaching or influencing in ways that are not to the full potential of what God could use you for. And so working outside the home, being up in front of the church and sharing a testimony or sharing something God has taught you. Uh, sometimes we restrict things in ways that hinder God's leadership. All I'm trying to say is, Deborah, God used her, right? And for you ladies today, when God does call you to fill in a gap or to step up in some area that God has led you to, don't be hesitant. May our church be someone who encourages and partners with you in what God has led you uh, to do. All right, with that being said then, just to bring this to application, we'll move to our second point today. God can use anything or anyone to listen to his people or to lead forward his people. Our job is not to allow the timidity or fearfulness of others to spread or to contaminate us, we who he wants to use in leadership. Where are you allowing the failure of other human leaders in our day to distort your view of God or his ability to liberate and to lead our generation? We're letting others set the tone of what God can do. May I encourage you to give God room again uh, in your life. All right, number two, go to verse nine. And we see a second issue that God meets the need in this hour uh, through the ministry of his grace in Judges chapter four. Look at verse nine. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Number two, emasculated inadequacy. Emasculated inadequacy. Um, do you remember we had the Clark family with us a few months ago for our anniversary last fall? We had a concert Saturday night. They were with us Sunday. Just sweet family. Um, Travis, who's probably... Um, I don't know, musically the most known and maybe most gifted the family would be willing to acknowledge. Uh, he just released a new song yesterday called Close to You. It's a really neat song. I'd encourage you to, not right now, but listen to it on your own time. He posted it just this weekend. But he shared a little backstory. You remember Travis that was here, the young guy, just very gifted uh, musician and vocalist. Um, so he had this song. He want, he's, the song is being closer to God. And so he decided to film this out in Colorado. Um, and we've been in that area, um, just last summer we were in that area, not too far from where he's describing, and he found on Facebook Marketplace a free piano, and they lugged this free piano to the top of Pike's Peak to shoot the video footage to be closer to God, okay, I guess was the thinking, um, and so he just had this little side story behind the video, and when they got the, I don't, have any of you, how many of you have gone up Pikes Peak? I mean, it's like not for the faint of heart, okay? Imagine lugging a huge used piano up, up to the top of this. They get it off, they put it out, and it, he said almost immediately this snowstorm just came on them. And so if you watch the video, he said he tried to pretend like he wasn't shaking or freezing to death singing this song, but they were trying to finish this video clip of this song, all these different angles and shots, um, as this snowstorm was coming in. Have you ever gotten yourself into something that you're just like, I don't know if we can finish this. I don't know if we can, I feel inadequate. I feel like I'm not up to this task. I can start it, but finishing it is a challenge. What's interesting in the story today is Barak starts the battle, listen, but he doesn't finish it. God uses someone else to finish uh, what had been started. 
And may I say today, God will fulfill his promises to his people, even when those who currently are in leadership are not finishing the job. They're not completing the responsibilities or assignments that God has given to them. And so I'm thankful that God is willing to do that. Notice a few things that he does here. All right, so for these inadequate men described in Judges chapter 4, God fills in or makes up the difference. Number one, jot this down. Know that God will still defeat his enemies despite inadequate men. Aren't you thankful for that? Um, I think sometimes we put too much on ourselves. Well, how are we going to win? How are we going to conquer? How are we going to see this victory come? The victory, the defeat of our enemies does not rest upon men. It, de- it depends upon God who will finish what he has started. Now in verse 11, all right, so go down to verse 11. In verse 10, he's describing the 10,000 men are getting themselves together. In verses 12 and 13, you have Sisera, who is also rallying his troops, and we're about to have this collision, this battle. But notice in verse 11, what seems like a random verse will later make sense as we read the text. Verse 11, now Heber, the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, all right, that's interesting, isn't it? Had severed himself from the Canaanites, all right, and they're described back in chapter 1 of Judges and pitched his tent under the plain of Zanonim, which is by Kedesh. And they showed Sisera uh, that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was, up, uh, was gone up to Mount Tabor. So we'll get to verse 12 in a moment. But notice it refers to Heber or Haber the Kenite. Just a random fact that later is going to have great significance. What's the significance of Haber? jail. And so he gives us this little nugget, this little preview the narrator does on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what God is setting in motion. Jot this down. First of all, we see God giving a defeating preparation. God is setting the preparation necessary, the groundwork needed to completely defeat this enemy. Long before they realized it, everything was being put in motion and orchestrated by God to set up the ultimate and final defeat of the enemy. I may just say this to you today. When we feel that the cause of God and his people is rudderless, when we feel like we're just drifting, listen to me, God in that very moment is setting up for the next win. I don't know if you feel like right now we're just drifting and I feel like we're not gaining ground. In fact, maybe we're losing some ground. Do you know right now God is setting up for the next victory he's going to bring? I believe that with every neuron of my being, at least if I'm basing my feelings and my thinking on the Word of God. It's not a wasted moment. Um, even a setback is just, it's just a, it's a preparation for the next push that God is going to make. And so this little detail in verse 11 reminds us that God is always working on the next defeat of His enemies. He, he's building that. He's, he's coalescing some things. He's bringing some things together. Uh, to, in the right moment, bring about his working. Um, I haven't mentioned it because I've kind of just been tracking it at a distance, but any of you familiar with the, the revival, at least, that it's been called in Asbury campus? Have any of you been tracking that? Um, Brother Studer was saying that his wife, uh, Mrs. Studer, was a student there back in the 70s, I think, when the last kind of revival happened on that campus. And uh, we all have our thoughts on maybe that or other things. But do you realize that right now God is, I, I really see him, whatever you think of that specific one, I'm hearing of things happening on college campuses all over the country right now. Um, and some of them maybe are a little sketchy, some of their associations, but some of them, I, because of things that I have observed or know, they're being managed by very solid, grounded ministries on college campuses. And God is stirring. Um, and I'm excited about that, not just for our generation, but the one to come. But a pastor friend of mine kind of had this thought, why is God moving on college campuses this morning? Why is it happening there? Um, And this is a tough truth, but he said this, friend of mine um, that has no bitter spirit, just giving us as the church some challenge. He said this, perhaps revivals are breaking out on college campuses in part because many of our parents or grandparents' churches have voted to discontinue Sunday evening services, and we rarely find Wednesday night prayer times, and Bible studies are of little, if any, importance. Could God be starting revivals outside the church walls because the church has found they can function just fine without Him? 
Has the church adopted the slogan, one and done for the week? Have we said, God, send us revival, but fit it in an hour or less? Attendance has declined, even among the old guard. The church is on the outside looking in. And if we're not careful, we're checking out right when God's leaning into some things he wants to do. And whether it's in those specific areas or others, are we being faithful to believe that God is on the move in this moment? Um, it, on Sunday nights, uh, tonight, and again, encourage you to be here, but our teens, they have their gathering, and some of those adults in this room, they don't see you on Sunday nights, and that's obviously for a lot of reasons, some I'm sure that are good. But tomorrow, I turn 43 years of age. It's my birthday, and I'm feeling older every year, as we all do. And I'm just telling you, listen to me, God will move whether my generation gets involved or not, right? Amen. He, he's going to move on He's either going to move in your generation or he's going to move on from you to someone else. But he's always going to move. And so may we be engaged where we are disengaged. Defeating, preparation, established, groundwork laid by a God who is gracious when his people did not deserve. Did not deserve what he's about to do in the text. All right, go to verse 14. So as I said, Sisera gets his crew together. They've got all their flashy, snazzy chariots. And now in verse 14, And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, all right, arise, for this is the day. This is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? I love, there's so much in those words right there. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord disconfitted Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Number two, defeating intervention. Defeating intervention. Defeating preparation, number two, defeating intervention. Now, I've not said anything until this moment for a very important reason, but chapter five of Judges is really a, so chapter four, if you understand the difference between prose and poetry, so prose would be a book you read, a biography, something that's just in common vernacular, and then you have poetry. Chapter four is the prose of this story. Chapter 5 is the poetry. It's a song of celebration about what God had just done in chapter 4. And so I'm going to give you just a summary. You have to go to chapter 5 to find some of the details of the battle. How did God defeat his enemy in chapter 4? We really don't have much in verses 14 to 16 that we just read. But if you piece together chapter 5 by Deborah and Barak, the ones who were there, about what God did, here would be kind of a summary of that. So Barak shows his force of 10,000 men upon the southern slopes of Mount Tabor. Sisera then rises and takes the bait, if you will. He sees the, the, the diminished or the lesser. Hey, look, they don't have any chariots. Hey, there's not too many of them. And so he takes the bait. He and his chariots then cross the dry river Kishon, the riverbed of Kishon, um, and they race southeast along this highway that was there in that region called Tanakh. Deborah then calls for the attack in verse 14 that we just read. Footmen against chariots, not the most level playing field or battlefield, if you will. And at a critical moment, rain falls, turning the plain into a mire, into a mud pit, utterly confounding the chariots and the horses. In fact, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 5, just a couple of instances of where we get these facts. Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, and the clouds also dropped rain. And so now the, these chariots that were their advantage now get mired in the mud. Isn't that amazing intervention on the part of God? All right, cue up the clouds, bring in the rain. Yeah, put it right there over that dry riverbed. And so the advantage that they'd had for 20 years has been neutralized with just a few storm clouds, the intervention of God. Now the advantage is to the infantry. These guys just cruised around in chariots. The footmen knew how to walk. They knew how to run. They knew how to march. And, and so the attack, the attack is, is pressed, Barak and his men. They attack Sisera and as his men jump out of their chariots and run for their lives, fighting on foot in a way they were unfamiliar with. 
And then what's interesting is if you go to chapter or verse 20 of chapter 5, they fought from heaven, the stars and their courses fought against Sisera. That's an unbelievable verse. So you have the heavens fighting against Sisera. God doesn't need men to fight his foes. He's got all other kinds of resources that he can bring to bear to confront the enemies even of our day. Verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river Kishon, O my soul, that thou hast trodden down strength. And so now all this water floods this dry riverbed, and the chariots that were left are all washed down river by everything that God is doing. We're guilty sometime of the, same, of the same mindset of those who are evolutionists, who will look at the erosion of, for example, the Grand Canyon or some other place, and they will gauge how many years it's taken to erode it based upon its current pace. You know that God in a moment can do what we think would take 10,000 years or a billion years? God can bring in a moment true revival today without any men doing anything, without anybody lifting a finger or doing what they think would facilitate it, God can do that in a moment. He spoke everything to, into existence, including this riverbed, in just moments. And so God can break in anew and afresh because he can still intervene on behalf of his people. God can give victory to footmen when the world, we feel like, are riding around the latest, greatest, newest chariot thing. He can still give victory to footmen if we will simply follow his instructions. If you're there in Judges, would you just for a moment, I think you need to see the verse, Second Chronicles, would you go there? From the example and lips of another man who saw God break in in a moment that was most desperate, Second Chronicles 32, a guy you may have heard of named Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 32. When we think because of men and their faults and their failures that all hope is lost, God reminds us that nothing could be further from the truth. Second Chronicles 32, look if you will at verse 8. Uh, go back to verse 7. So Hezekiah, they hear the speech of the king of Assyria. He's got Jerusalem surrounded. He's threatening to ruin and raise the city. And in verse number seven, he says, Hezekiah speaking to the people, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. Notice this last phrase, for there be more with us than with him. Isn't that good? Now look at verse eight. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Notice that first phrase in verse 8. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. I think we add up too often with our math what we think is possible in our day. What we think is possible in our generation or the generations that are following us. And can I just encourage you? Don't forget to include God in the equation. A God of all grace who again hears his people who have failed him, who opens himself again up to be of, de of de defense and of a, a help to them in this hour of need. God's defeat of our enemies ultimately is not dependent upon flesh. He doesn't need us. He can defeat them all on his own. Man's flesh, even at its best, um, even in the best era of church history, it still wasn't man's flesh that God used to accomplish his will. It rested on his spirit. It rested on his power. Our flesh is always inadequate, and yet God is always faithful. And so therefore, we can always have hope. Even if no one is standing, even if no one is fighting, we can still have hope this morning because God is willing to intervene. I think often we view our despondency and despair, we're just holding on till Jesus comes, that mindset, we view that as a realistic view. We're just being realist. But I'm telling you, nothing could be more disrespectful of a God who loves us and cares and wants to intervene this morning. When's the last time he talked about something new God could do, that he's willing to do? That doesn't depend on any other person, doesn't even ultimately depend upon you, but just depends upon his grace. When's the last time you had a fresh vision? The adults in the room especially, can I challenge you? When's the last time you had a burden for a new person to receive Christ that lives in your life? 
was the last time you thought that a wayward adult child could come back to God? When was the last time you believed we could start a new church? We could take on more missionaries. We could send more than three to West Africa. There are things God could do through us, but we have to rest and rely upon him. And so know today that God will defeat his enemies despite the inadequacies of men. It's always been God. It always will be God. Are we willing to rest in that and rely upon that in our day? All right, lastly, look at verse 17. Go back to our text there in Judges 4. And notice how this battle kind of unwinds. Probably one of the most graphic little stories of the whole book of Judges. Um, Judges chapter number 4. And look, if you will, now at verse 17. So the end of verse 16 says there was not a man left. But that really isn't true, is it, in one sense? Because there's one guy left. Who is it? The general. Sisera. He's still alive and running. Verse 18. Probably a bit winded as... Someone used to just being in a chariot. How be it, verse 17, Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenanite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenanite. Verse 18, and Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn into me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her in the tent, she covered him with a mantle. She said unto him, he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him to drink and covered him. Verse 20, again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here? It's interesting, isn't it? Is there any man here that thou shalt say no? Notice now verse 21. This is the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy that it would not be a man who takes out the leader of this army. Then Jael, Haber's wife, took a nail of the tent, took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, not just one, both of them, fastened it to the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. And then probably the one of the most obvious statements, so he died, okay? Thank you. I was wondering how the story was going to end, all right? Um, both of his temples. Number two, jot this down. Know that God will still eliminate his enemies despite inadequate men. Know that God will still eliminate his enemies despite inadequate men. Um, if you notice that uh, ladies and guys, we think differently about things that we watch and things specifically you're sitting down in front of the TV and different things you ladies get emotionally invested in. And then us guys, and it's funny how we can see the other, like husbands, we see our wives. Why would you get so worked up about that? And then ladies, same thing toward us. The other day I saw this little cartoon that is just so classic. So you have guys sitting next to lady, don't cry, it's only a movie. And then don't cry, she says to him, it's only a football game, okay? Um, you know, the first picture, the top one would be you ladies see that all romance potential has been eliminated by the script of the movie or someone dies or whatever the case may be, which is not a Hallmark movie, I'm sure, if that's the case. But anyway, don't cry, it's only a movie. And then guys, you know, sitting in a, the feet, laying in the fetal position because my favorite team just got eliminated from the playoffs or whatever the case may be. The view of, uh, of that which is traumatic, knowing that God will eliminate uh, his enemies, um, can I say to you today that God doesn't just put his enemies on the run? This was a complete route in Judges chapter 4, but there's one guy left, right? And God makes sure that, that this last final detail or wrinkle is resolved in the narrative. God will eliminate his enemies despite inadequate men. And while verse 16 says there's not a man left, we know there's one left, this unfinished business of Sisera. So let me give you a couple things as we finish. Number one, God is eliminating through his thoroughness. God is very, very thorough. Sisera here flees on fit, uh, foot to the, to, toward Kadesh, which was incidentally a city of refuge, and he runs toward the tents of Heber. Um, they had friendly relations between his boss, the king of Hazor, Jael welcomes him in, gives him the traditional hospitality of that day. And yet she doesn't share the allegiance of her husband. She doesn't share the same thinking toward this man as possibly he assumed. And so she drives this stake through his head 
an implement, by the way, she was very skilled at, pitching the tent and the, all the things that she now uses to her advantage. Now, I would be careful to say this. I don't know if it was right or wrong of jail to do. We could debate that. We could also talk about Rahab lying on behalf of the spies when they were in the city of Jericho. I don't know all the mor morals of it, but I will just say God will use everything to accomplish his will. Even maybe a misstep on someone's part or something that's dishonest or misleading, God uses it to accomplish and to finish his gracious will. And I want you to think about this today. What would change in our mind, in our, our mindset, in our heart, if we believe, listen to me, that everything going on right now in this moment on planet Earth is a part of God fulfilling and completing his will? Like every nuance, every corner and crevice, even the things that rip our heart out, that frustrate us, all of that is bringing his will together. That's how thorough God is. He doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste anything. He's using it. He's orchestrating it for his plan and his purpose. Now, one of the most fascinating things I've never seen before in this story is found in verse 30. Would you go down to chapter 5 and verse 30? Why did God choose to use women to take the lead when traditionally, and in most of the rest of the book of Judges, God uses men to be at the point? Why does he choose to use women? Was it because of the weak male leadership? Possibly that was a part of it. Likely it was. But I think there might be another reason. And I give you this little thought, not original with me, that someone else brought out of the text that clearly is here. Verse 30. So Deborah and Barak, they're singing, they're celebrating, which was a part of how they, remember when Miriam and Moses and Aaron, they're singing after the Red Sea. It just was a part of how they process victories. In verse number 28, if you go back there for just a moment, they set up kind of this hypothetical of Sisera's mommy wondering where he's at. And they're kind of just celebrating how God stuck it in the eye, if you will, of the enemy. So they kind of create this little scenario. And notice in verse 30, have they not sped? All right, basically, where are they at? Where are the men? Where's Sisera? Where's the army? Have they not divided the prey? Now notice this next phrase. To every man a damsel or two, to Sisera, a prey of diverse colors, a prey of diverse colors of needlework, going to talk about the spoil they were going to get. But notice that little phrase, to every man a damsel or two. And so as these ladies discuss the campaign of how it should go, we learn that Sisera was known, listen to me, to steal, to rape, to abuse, and to enslave women of his conquest. The word damsel that's found there in verse number 30 uh, would also translate wench or girl slave. That's the word that's being referred to. It's not talking about a damsel in the sense of one of revering them or, or, or considering them from a place of value. It's diminished them. It's objectifying them. It's misusing them or abusing them. And so you have this whole judge cycle in Judges chapter 4 that's around the actions of women. Deborah leads Israel under Sisera's, under Sisera's oppression. Um, Jael then is the one who closes out his reign of terror and abuse. It all ends at the hands of women. After making the lives of many women nightmares, it's two women who bring him down. Isn't that interesting? And there's an irony to a man who would use women as objects and yet is killed by the most womanly object of this day. Listen, even when it feels like something is deficient, God is still working even through that detail. And I think there's a reason God used women to bring down this man, to confront him and to remind everyone who was watching, I know what you did, I know what you defy, and I will defeat you on my terms and in my way. You know what verse 30 does is it comforts me that God is in every detail. And when I think you ought to lead through this way, and I wish these people would step up, I wish men in this room would step up, starting with me. And I wish someone that traditionally is the one God uses, God sometimes chooses to use someone else. Because there's a precise purpose and mission and agenda that he's in the know and I am not. And so he eliminates in a very thorough and precise manner. I think verse 30 reminds us God... In, uh, inserts himself into human history with very intentional reasons. In every moment, in every season, are we willing to trust him to do it his way? 
All right, now go back to chapter 4, and let's lay in with a couple of thoughts as we finish this chapter. And behold, all right, so jail takes out Sisera. Now the army has been obliterated. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, jail came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. So he's chasing down Sisera, still thinks he's on the run. When he came into the tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. Literally, his head was nailed to the ground. Verse 23, so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. Lastly, eliminating fulfillment. God is thorough in how he eliminates his enemies. Number two, he fulfills everything he has promised as he eliminates his enemies. And so Jael is the fulfillment of the prophecy Deborah gave earlier. Deborah is a woman prophesied it. Jael is a woman finished it. She completed what God had promised. God may not use the means you and I are used to or we would prefer, but listen to me, God is always going to do what he said he's going to do. And he's often going to do that through a generation, in the midst of a generation, even despite a generation, he will always fulfill his word. He will eliminate our enemies. Now, it's interesting in verse 23 that it does not say Deborah subdued Jabin. It doesn't say that Jael subdued Jabin, it doesn't say that Barak subdued. It says what? God subdued. And though there were different human players involved, it was ultimately God who gets the credit. It was God who did the work. And it's interesting in chapter 4 that the name of God is only mentioned in four verses in chapter 4. And then when you get to chapter 5, God is like all over the chapter. God's the one getting the glory. God's the one getting the credit. It was all about him to begin with. It was all about his praise and his purpose being accomplished uh, in this moment. Uh, Verse 24 ends the story. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So we see that this army defeat leads to the decline of this oppressor until eventually they posed no threat, no serious threat to Israel. It was a progressive victory that God gave to his people. May I say today, God can work in any generation, including the ones without strong spiritual men, because his will is done in fulfillment of his word, not because of man's meritorious earning of it. He's going to do what he's promised, despite what we do. Often despite us, God will still prove himself uh, in our day. And so may we be willing to trust God and believe God that he is able and willing to do so. Just a question tonight, uh, this, this morning. Where are you settling for negotiating with, siding with, or learning to live with those that God can and will defeat? Um, I think we've gotten used to the enemy having the upper hand and the world being on the move and the world being assertive and they're setting the tone. And, and we're, we've just gotten used to cohabitate cohabitating with them, just like we see in Judges chapter 1. Instead of believing that God can defeat, God can deliver in his time and in his way. All right, go to chapter 5, and we'll land here today, verse 16. Judges chapter 5, and look, if you will, verse 16 through verse 18. And here would be the closing application today. Somebody was talking about two sounds you'll always hear in a healthy church, and I thought this was so good. Number one, you'll hear noisy babies, right? That's a, that's a sign of a healthy church. Um, and number two, this one is equally important, singing men. Singing men. Chapter five is not just Deborah with a featured solo in soprano with her great feminine voice. Look at it. Verse one says, Deborah and Barak. And Barak sings to God about what God has done in in their day and in this moment where I think his heart changes. I think Barak was a different man in chapter 5 than he probably was in chapter 4. But if you go down to verse 16, it describes a few who held out during this battle. Verse 16, why abodest thou among the sheepfolds? These are those that didn't go to battle. To hear the bleeding of the flocks for the division of Reuben. So this is Reuben. There was great searching of heart. Verse 17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? And Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. So you had those who did not go to the battle. But then in verse 18, notice Zebulun and Naphtali were the people that jeopardized their, jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. 
And Zebulun and Naphtali, they didn't care about what Reuben should have been doing that he didn't do. What Asher, what's he doing on the beach when we're battling? They still asserted themselves. They still engaged themselves in the battle. The question this morning is not what other people and leaders are doing or not doing, or if God can and will work, but will we be on the inside or the outside looking in on what God is doing? Which will we be? will define largely how God uses us or doesn't. All right, I want to show you this little video clip. I don't need the audio, guys. But this, I don't know if you watched Bull uh, riding at all, but this is such a good illustration. So just watch the little clip, and then I'll bring this to application as we finish. Maybe you saw this. This happened just recently. And watch to the right as the man comes on screen. The guy on the ground is the son. The guy that laid on top of him was his dad, is his dad. He literally covered up his boy in the moment of crisis as that, as that bull turned on him. Can I say to you today as we finish, there's a God who is a he. He is our heavenly father. And no matter any other man that's dropped the ball, mistreated us, continues to be a failure in some way, we have a man, we have a God, we have a father who always will take care of us. Where's our confidence? Where's our conviction? Where's our faith to launch out in this day, believing that our God still can? The God who shields us, the God who sustains us, and listen to me, the God who delivers us when we least deserve it. That's the God every generation has access to. May we trust him enough to yield to him and believe in that this morning. Here's the question we'll pray. Will you allow God to free you and every generation you influence from the despair of emasculated timidity and emasculated inadequacy. God is faithful. God is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today.